Okay, well, we are supposedly live, and I have pushed the button, and so here we are. July the 18th, 2021, lecture discussion number 144 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, uh, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. So we're right where we have always been. Oh, I should say really fast, I'm not wearing a tie, because why? That's right, it's 81 degrees in Anchorage, and we're miserable. We're miserable. We can't wait for it to get back to 48, 47. That's what we're hoping for. We can't handle this kind of heat. I mean, who can live in Arizona? I mean, you just can't live there. But apparently there's three or four people there. Okay, so enough of that. We are still investigating this list, and it was given to us by two people, effectively. Unnamed Anna had one question about seeing the, uh, the breath of the spirit of life that is inside of all living beings. And Valerie from Florida wanted to know about the angelic realm. You can't know about the angelic realm. I guess I can just put those glasses down now. can't know about the angelic realm until you also know about the animal kingdom and the humanity or the mankind kingdom. So you have... Three, angel, animal, human. And that is the order, angel, animal, human. And so eventually we'll have to get into why that is the order. And there's some dispute over whether or not that's the true order. There's an argument for angel, human, animal. And we'll have to get to all of that eventually. How, how long is it going to take to get through this list? I don't know. Another year. Easily, yeah. Easily. So there you go, Valerie. See what you did again? Okay, we're still investigating the three kingdoms, as I said. And for those of us that are just joining us, we left off last Sunday, uh, lecture number 143 on the book of Joel with Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 21. And that's not fair. I'm gonna, I, I did that on purpose because I try to confuse you by design. It's really not the correct thing, thing to say. 3, 18, 21 is not right. But we'll get to that in a minute. And we have begun this shortwave radio broadcast, Worldwide Christian Radio, and I should probably announce uh, that our materials, because you shortwave folks, if you're listening to me, I don't know where you are. You're all over the place, uh, I understand. But if you're listening to me, we have materials that are available at cliffside.org, sermonaudio.com, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, Facebook, so if you just search for Cliffside Community Chapel, that should suffice. Kurt from Arizona, who can live in Arizona? Nobody lives there, so it can't be. There can't be a Kurt from Arizona. But uh, if there were a Kurt from Arizona, he informed me that somehow we're also on Apple Podcast, and we didn't know how that happened. Apparently, Cliffside has become this bacteriological infection of sorts, and we're metastasizing uh, without our assistant. It just, uh, it, it's just becoming... Whatever it is becoming. The point is, yay, a point already. If you've missed lecture number 143, you can find it on those platforms, and some of them have video, and you can actually see the, the board. Right. Oh, hey, one, one more thing. Yes. Something uh, new. Uh, Spotify has picked us up. Oh, there you go. So apparently, Spotify has picked us up as well, along with uh, Pod, or what was it, Apple Podcast. So again, yeah. we are metastasizing. We are. <laughs> How, how our little Pushin church, Lily Pushin church here, uh, has become a multinational operation. That's a big mystery. It was not my idea. No way. Uh, Kurt and Dave and Ben and conceived the plan, uh, both individually and collectively, and, and they, uh, they did not ask me for my input, which was very wise whatsoever. Uh, if you'd asked me, I'd have said uh, an eccentric, discursive uh, Bible lecture of 60 minutes that uh, is not going to be uh, well received. 
not exactly an attractive proposition. I would have never thought it would do what it's done, especially when the front man, I would assume that I am the front man here, is a sickly, poorly dressed, half-blind, ranting old man with, with a bad haircut. Uh, that just doesn't seem to be a productive plan. Anyway, last Sunday ended with Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 21. It didn't. I'm intentionally misleading you again. And it, but just to say, just to keep the, the ruse going, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 21, it's one of the most poorly exposited passages in all of the Bible. Commentators by the abounding, not only uh, you get it wrong, but actually arrive at an interpretation that is exactly the opposite of what the Holy Spirit through Solomon expressed. So their analysis of it is a complete, absolute inversion. It's, a, it's antimatter, if you want to use a physics term. Don't be shocked by that. That happens a lot. Commentation is not inspired. It's somebody's opinion. And you have to test it. You may remember that Psalm 49.12 and Psalm 49.20 are also similarly misunderstood in much the same manner as Ecclesiastes 3.18-21. through 21. So when you go to uh, uh, Psalm 49.12, 49.20, you're going to see something in your Bibles, that are, if you have a typical translation, that is incorrect. And the commentation on it is absolutely incorrect because they don't understand the original Hebrew there or they don't care. So we'll get to that as we go along today. And all, our, uh, all of these misunderstood positions are, are in direct opposition to the categorical descriptions of animals being given the breath of God and defined as living beings, something we covered last week, living souls, nefesh, shaya, exactly the same as mankind. All animals, all mankind in Genesis uh, 2, 7, 120, 121, 124, 130, 722, 715, and others, all of those are nefesh, shaya, and they describe human beings and Human, I'm sorry, an animal that, of having ruach, ruach, nefesh, shaya. If you have that, you are a living being, both animal and human. That is what the Bible says. And Ecclesiastes 3.18.21, in fact, reinforces that animals and humanity have the sameness. And it always has mystified me as to how the contemporary expositors could just overlook it. It's, in, it's as plain as it can be, in my opinion. I look at it and I see Genesis 1.30 and Genesis 2.7 locked together in Ecclesiastes 3. So, and this component of Solomon's contention, how could they overlook it and instead launch themselves into the ditch of theological blunder? Because that's what they've done, in my opinion. I hope I can prove it. I'm confident that I can. If I, I, I'm confident that I proved it enough last week. And this is just pounding it in. This is punitive now. Almost unnecessary. Yesterday, I, I wrote back to wonderful people, Steve and Mindy from Florida, whose uh, five-year-old golden retriever is diagnosed with uh, canine lymphosarcoma or lymphoma. Uh, and they did not specify, and uh, the dog's name is Bear, whether or not he has cutaneous, cutaneous lymphoma or extranodal lymphoma. And lymphoma is a cancer of the lymph lymphatic system, and it is not good. I have to eat ice now because I'm stumbling over my words. That's the organ system that's associated with blood circulation and immunity. 
lymphoma is all sarcoma is a serious condition. Uh, as you were, if you knew last week, I started to talk about my dog Abigail, who has uh, osteosarcoma. But lymphoma and osteosarcoma—they're all serious, dire prognoses. Anyway, the situation is one of it's great sadness. Um, but I got to say really quickly, the immortality of Ruach Nefesh Shaya is that animals that have Ruach Nefesh Shaya, their immortality is an absolute guarantee. And the Bible is, it cannot be more clear. So Bear is an eternal living being. He has the breath of God inside of him. And so he is eternal. And I wrote to Stephen Mendy that the immortality of animals is, an, is a fundamental and essential doctrine. What do I mean by that? You need to know it. It has to be known. Uh, all Christians must understand it. You can't set this aside and ignore it, in my opinion. Again, I keep saying that today. Why do I believe that it is a fundamental, essential doctrine that every single Christian ought to have completely clear. Obviously, there is a ramification or an implication or a consequence, if any one of those words you like, uh, to not knowing it or knowing it, either one. There's a reason that God has this beautiful logic here, because he does. There's a why to it. And I believe that must be known and taught. The Laodicean Church of today has abandoned the subject uh, to, uh, as I said last week, to evolutionary monism or evolutionary atheism. That's, uh, those are synonyms. So there's this great truth that uh, has been let go by the Laodicean Church of today. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be shocked by it. That's, uh, that's going to be a pattern as you go through the subject. For some reason, the church does not believe what is obvious here and does not teach it today. It's very rare to find it. So this great truth can be placed into summation by asking a couple of questions. Why do animals die? And why are animals immortal? So answering those questions, I again think it's a fundamental, essential uh, process. Do not assume that these are elementary questions. As always, they're not. If you have a simple answer to those two questions, then you are either completely wrong or intentionally wrong, or likely both. And I'm sorry if I've insulted anybody, but not, not really fake sorry. NF, NRFS. Okay, let's reread Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 21. And again, that's a trick. So be careful when I do things like that. So let's reread it. So I will do it. I said in my heart, with regard to the sons of Adam, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are animals. For what happens to the sons of Adam and what happens to the animals is the same. It's the same. As one dies, so dies the others. They all have the same spirit breath. This is Ecclesiastes 3.18.21. It is used over and over and over in, the, in, in theological circles as condemning animals to annihilation. Just listen to the words. How, how do you get that position? They have the same spirit breath. And man has no advantage over the animals, for all is vanity. All go to one 
place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. Who can know whether the spirit breath of man goes upwards and the spirit breath of the animals go downwards to the earth? That is a rhetorical question that no one, I've not read anybody outside of the 1800s. I found people in the 1800s that got that right. I've not met, read one single con, uh, contemporary commentator that has that verse correct, that last section there. Verse 21. And you may notice that I did not read the same passage, the same translations that I read last week. I ran out of time last week, so I couldn't include both versions. This week, I read it as I believe it is more correctly rendered, so that you could begin to put the two together. Unfortunately, like I said, I didn't get to it. I intended to. It was it was cut because of time. Two major differences uh, in what I read last week and this week, which we'll get to shortly. But first, Solomon answers his own question because it's not Ecclesiastes 3.18 through 21. It's not. It's three. It's Ecclesiastes 3.18 through 22. And I intentionally left off 22. Now, the reason I did that is because I wanted you to read 21 and think that was the end of the issue so that you would be puzzled by it. And I hope that all of you out there listening to me went, wow, that last verse, who can know whether the spirit breath of man goes upwards and the spirit breath of the animals goes down to the earth? I hope that that worried you, or at least caused you to ponder. uh, Ponder, sorry, not ponder. What is pondering? It's not a word yet. I can make it a word. He went out and pondered. They pondered. I shall ponder someday. Give me another week. I will have a, a complete uh, definition of pondering. Is that like blundering? I don't know yet. Okay. Two major differences between what I read, and again, we'll get to that as time goes by. Not Maybe not today, but first Solomon answers his own question. He asks that rhetorical question, number one, and then he answers it in Ecclesiastes 3.22. So he gives you the answer to what he meant. How they can take that, dissect it from 3.22, and make a determination that, that only they have, uh, it astonishes me. It, it very frustrates me, as you can tell. So Ecclesiastes 3.22, I'll read that. So, I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Another rhetorical question. That would be rhetorical question number two. He puts two rhetorical questions essentially back to back. Hopefully, my little subtle extenuations there... Uh, were noticed. I did my best. I jumped up and down. I tried everything. Sometimes uh, no one heeds my little attempts to draw attention to certain words because by page five of the lecture, the overwhelming percentage of people who are listening are fast asleep, out cold, cold sleep. Yeah. And and we, oh, looky now, we're on page five. So I know what happens out there. It's okay. Don't take it personal. Uh, as, as you know, I think curing insomnia is a blessing. And I'm anxious to keep continuing that. Okay, for both of you who are still with us, you might remember that we ended last week with a question, what is this test that is in verse 18? God tests them. If all you get out of me is you got to figure out that test, 
then I have succeeded gloriously. What is the test? God is testing the sons of Adam with the truth that includes the animal kingdom. Some kind of test here. Obviously, the totality of 318 Ecclesiastes to 22 is bound. It's banded together with the purpose and the basis of the test. You cannot understand what 318 through 22 is dealing with until you have some formulation, some understanding of that test. In other words, what is the exactly is the test? What is the test given to mankind? Why is he giving this particular test? Everything that follows Ecclesiastes 3.18 refers back to 3.18 of Ecclesiastes. Everything. So everything written all the way to uh, 3.22, the very last word, what will happen after him, that all refers back to the test. Ecclesiastes 3.18 is the substructure. Recognizing this from the beginning is critical or you will get off. You will not arrive at the correct uh, destination. If you want to think of it that way, it's easy to go off the rails at Ecclesiastes 3.18 through 22. The easiest way is to stop at 3.21, which is overwhelming. I've had commentaries that go on and on and on about animals being annihilated, and then they don't even mention 3.22. Like they think it didn't, it is not there. When in fact it's the answer. The theological sector has, has sent thousands and thousands and thousands of locomotives into the Susitna River. They've gone off the track. And that's my little metaphor there, and that'll mean nothing to anybody in Arizona. You have to live in Alaska and know where the Susitna River is. 2503, when I was at the Alaska Railroad, contest led by the 2503, all went off into the Susitna River. And it was, uh, it got hit by a snowslide or a landslide. Can't remember which. Combination of both, I believe. And my job was to rebuild that 2503, among other things. Anyway, solve the test and you solve Ecclesiastes 18 through 22. Or if you want to think of it, 19 through 22. What he means. He's referring back to the test literally with every single word he wrote. And in order to solve the test, it's going to be necessary to accurately describe the components. God is testing the sons of Adam so that they may see. He wants them to see something, so he's giving them a test. Implication is there, what? That man can't see it. Man doesn't see it. But he wants him to see it. And it's a test. And it has something to do with animals. And for some undisclosed reason, man does not see that we are animals. That's what it says. That they may see that they are animals. The word like is not in that sentence. So how exactly not like the animals that we are animals? So how exactly are we animals? Physically, the biological sciences has long ago established that uh, there's a physical relationship. Mammals and birds have four-chambered hearts, just like us. That's an easy example. Two atria, left and right, two ventricles, left and right. The system is the receiving of deoxygenated blood and the sending of oxygen, and sending it to be oxygenated by the lung system. It's cardiopulmonary. So we are like animals. That's not what he said. He said we are animals. Solomon is not folking, folking. Good grief. Focusing. He's not focusing on mammalian physiology. His point is the death of the body. What happens to man and what happens to animals is the same. It's exactly the same. 
No difference. As one dies, so dies the other. As an animal dies, so dies humanity. Apparently, the sons of Adam, mankind, doesn't get it, doesn't see this. So there has to be a test. The lesson is somehow shrouded in some in this mystery here. Yet it seems really simple, but you all know this, I hope you know, which includes the vast internet and now the shortwave audience. I hope you understand that. If you think that this is simple, and if you have a simple answer, uh, then you are wrong. Guaranteed. This is not simple. Incredibly complicated. So why... How are animals' deaths the exact same as human deaths? Because Solomon tells us animals and humans have the same breath of the spirit of life. The same one. Nefesh shaya. Ruach nefesh shaya. Breath of the spirit of life. And having the same breath spirit or the spirit breath of life, Genesis 7.22-7.15, means that the death is the same. The death has to be the same because you both have Rosh, Nefesh, Shayah. Mankind has no advantage over the animals at death. Does mankind suppose he has an advantage over the animals? Theologically, oh yeah. Say it all the time. Finding a Bible teacher who will teach that men have no advantage over the animals when it comes to the death of both is incredibly rare in our modern age. Obviously, I've chosen to agree with the Holy Spirit of God and Solomon. I mean, that to me seems like one of the biggest does in all of uh, Bible scholarship. Man has no advantage over the animals at death, no preference, no superiority, no wealth. It's exactly the same. If there were to be an advantage, what would be the leverage? What would you think the leverage would be? Would it be that man is carried by angels and animals are not carried? It's got to be the same. Solomon says it's the same. That which happens to humans at death happens to animals at death. They are exactly the same because they have the same breath of the spirit of life. So whatever you have for animal death, you have to have the exact same position for human death. If you have annihilation for animals, then you have to have annihilation for humans. That is what you end up being caught in. It's a gambit. It's a trap. It's, it's, it's laid out there as clear as it can be. If, you, if a man is carried by angels, and we are, Luke 16, Genesis 28, 12, then what? If it's got to be the same, it's the same. Every living being that has the breath of the spirit of life has the same experience at death. Because all is vanity, he says. Might be prudent to nail down what Solomon means by vanity. Vanity is overwhelmingly assumed to be what? In our culture today, it's assumed to be ego. And that's not what he means. It's likely that your definition is, just does not happen to be the Holy Spirit of God's and Solomon's definition. You see, Solomon actually gives three definitions of vanity. Gotta watch my time here, don't I? I'm doing good. As you know, Ecclesiastes means preacher. That's why it's called Ecclesiastes. It means preacher, and Solomon is the preacher. 
Ecclesiastes 1-2 begins the dissertation here. This is a sermon. He's preaching it with vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's a very famous verse. What does vanity mean? He mentions it, what, uh, five times. It's my opinion that uh, Solomon's three definitions of vanity are actually one definition with three presentations or renditions that are the same. That is what I think is accurate, and we'll see if I'm right. I mean, come on. Solomon means vanity, uses vanity to mean a vapor-like fleetiness in James 4.14, which is that famous verse, for what is your life? It is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. So that is one of his elements of vanity. Okay? Uh, instead, you have to say this, James said, if the Lord wills, we shall, we shall live and do this or that. Because your life is a vapor. The duration is very short. And that is how Solomon concludes his sermon, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. Fear God, keep his commandments, because this is all there is. This is man's all. And note also Ecclesiastes 12, 7 through 8. Then the dust will return to dust as it was, and the spirit will return to God who is spirit. John 4, 24. Who gave it? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, he says there as well. Men are the same as animals in that our time on earth is brief. It's transitory. We are all both eternal beings on a journey that awaits the ending of this period, this phase, if you want to think of it this way, that this age, this time. Pick your, pick your reference and, and be happy. I, it doesn't matter what it is as long as you understand it. It's all transitory. The second element of vanity that Solomon has is the cursed condition of the earth. So... Uh, what I mean by that is all of the creatures groan, Romans 8.22. Every single creature groans. Every single creature suffers. All created things groan and suffer a common misery. All endure pain and disorder. All endure futility. So that element is vanity. The third element of vanity is that which is unknowable. It's a great mystery. You can't know it. Man has no advantage then because all is fleeting. It's a vapor because the earth is in a cursed state and no one can know the incomprehensible, the unanswerable questions. That's his definition of vanity. Put it all together for one definition. And that explains uh, then why Solomon asked an unknowable question at 321. Again, who knows? It's unknowable. It's a mystery. See, there's his vanity. Who knows the spirit of sons which goes upwards and the spirit of, animal, of the animal which goes down to the earth? That's his rhetorical question number one, as I said. All go to one place. All are from dust. And to dust all return. All means all. All of the ruach, nefesh, shayah. That's what he's dealing with here. Because everything, everyone, man and animal that have the same ruach, breath of the spirit of life, go to the same place. The breath of the spirit of life returns to him who gave it, and the body of the dust temporarily to the dust. It's the same. If the body of man goes to the dust temporarily, then the body of animals go to the dust temporarily because it's all the same for Rosh Nefesh Shaya. The system, the process is the same. The one place, the one status is identical. Theologically, it's called the intermediate state. 
And I've discussed that in the past quite a few times. The one place is the intermediate state, the same place. All go and all means go. Can't say enough about the first rule here. I keep saying all, all go, same place. First rule, repeat. Second rule, repeat. Third rule is what? Repeat what you repeated. So I'm pounding as best I can because I know what I'm up against here. I know so many people have this wrong, overwhelmingly have it wrong. And I'm, I'm ranting. That's what I'm doing. That's why I didn't thought, did not think at any time that we'd have more of an audience. What do we got here? Two, three count, Lori? Four count me and two dogs? Wow. Okay, never thought this would, this would go to South Africa, Korea. Apparently it's going to Korea. So that'll be very interesting. And then with this unknowable question and answer, how can we answer an unknowable question? How can we even know that this is an unknowable question? And, and well, conveniently, again, Solomon gives the answer. And why is it that so few learned Bible scholars overlook that and overlook the answer? That Obviously, they have a reason. The American Standard Bible tells you that they do not believe and do not teach and would not ever accept that animals are immortal. If you have an American Standard Bible and you believe that animals are immortal, they do not think that that is true. And you should know that about your translation. Because again, it isn't just about animals. It's a test of God. What is God testing? Whether or not you can figure this out? Maybe. I mean, that's an element of it. But what is he really testing? Think about it. Why is this a fundamental, essential test? that he gave the sons of Adam. How many sons of Adam are, have there been? All of us. It's all of humanity. Okay, remember Ecclesiastes 3.18, the substrate. It's going to go back. God tests men that they may see that they themselves are animal. Again, the word like is in italics. It's not in the test text. Get it out of there because you put it in like animals, you'll screw it up. So figure out, God tests men that they may see that they themselves are animals. The first assignment given to Adam was to name each and every animal individually, individually named. Give them a new name, their first name. Revelation 2.17 is the New Testament complement to Genesis 2.18-20. So put those together as bookends. To him who overcomes, Christ will give some of the hidden manna to eat, a white stone, and on the white stone a new name which no one knows except him who receives it. So Revelation 2.17, Genesis 2.18, same thing, essentially, put together. The first Adam named, gave a new name to every animal brought to him by God. God brought those animals to, to Adam. You'll see the same similar wording when he brings animals to Noah. So God brought animals to Adam, Genesis, uh, uh, again, Genesis 2.18-20. But he gave a name to a new name to every animal. That that will give you an understanding why uh, we have Genesis three nineteen, right? So uh, the point here, yay, a point. How many points is that so far? I think two. Was to see what Adam would name them. That's what the Bible says. He wanted to see what Adam would name them. And the second Adam, the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 39 through 49, names all of those who are res resurrected unto life. They get a new name, hidden manna, and a white stone. 
I've been talking, uh, we talked earlier, uh, Lori and I, about manna. Why did the Israelis not like manna? They wanted, they wanted something else. They didn't want it anymore. I always wanted to know, uh, how did the manna affect them? It's, it is a, it is a picture of Christ. It's pure white. It's, it's bread from heaven. If you eat it, what happens to you? Instead, they wanted to eat what? They wanted to eat animals. Now, listen, I understand that if we don't have animal protein, we're all going to die. That's, we're in a cursed world here. And I'm not trying to say that, uh, that, that I don't understand that. I do. But I can look at Israel. I think, I, I was telling Lori, it's my opinion, that uh, what he did is he said, eat this and eat this only. They didn't want to do that. It's Christ. Take Christ. Eat this communion. Eat this. It's my body. They said no. They rejected the manna. That's rejecting Christ. And so they want to go back to eating animals and they die. So there's a lot of theology there. Okay. There are stupid questions under the heading of stupid questions. There really are stupid questions. People who say there are no stupid questions are wrong. There are stupid questions. How many names and how many white stones does he have to give out? So I'm asking you to think about the resurrection. So picture that in your mind. And he's handing out white stones and new names. Every stone has the new name on it. And you're the only one that has that name. Sound like DNA to you? Psalm 139? Okay. I'm going to ask, now again, under the heading that there are stupid questions... How can the omniscient, omnipotent creator God himself name all those who are resurrected with a new name and give them all a white stone? How much time does the one who is outside of time need to do this? Those are two stupid questions back to back. Where did he get the white stones? See how many dumb questions I can write along? I'm good at it. How much time does the one who is outside of time need to do this? Anyway, I should add that 1 Corinthians 15.39 lists the different kinds of bodies, mankind and animals, fish and birds. All of these will be resurrected, raised in glory. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15.39 through 42. The natural bodies will be raised a spiritual body. And one characteristic of a spiritual body is that it's invulnerable. It's eternal. It cannot die. Death is defeated. That new body will never be subject to death. One characteristic of a spiritual body, again, uh, is that death has no impact. Absolutely none. And yes, I know the majority of Bible commentators select out the resurrection of the saved people at 1 Corinthians 15.39, and they say it isn't got anything to do with animals, even though animals, mankind, animals, fish, and birds are all mentioned in 15.39, and 15.42 is only three verses away. You've got to be kidding. But they do. They select out only mankind. They leave, leave aside animals, fish, and birds. They disregard it. They call out the animals from the resurrection given in 1542 of 1 Corinthians. Obviously, the Apostle Paul passed the test of Ecclesiastes 3.18. And not, the, not so the Laodiceans church today. Again, evolutionary uh, philosophy has polluted the church. So also is this what about me stuff that goes on in our culture. 
Everything is about my self-esteem. And nothing is about my self-esteem. Read the Bible. We're to come to him humbly. We're going to have a whole bunch of people shouting how much they deserve being saved, how much they deserve being resurrected. Mm-hmm. They will find that the judgment seat of Christ will be a, a difficult time. Okay, the obvious being obvious, the naming of the animals by Adam is a greatly significant event. It's part of the test. Somehow attaching to the hidden manna and the white stone and the new name and all those resurrected to life, somehow naming of the animals is attached to that. And therefore it's all linked to the test again in Ecclesiastes 3.18 because Adam was the first one to pass the test. He wanted God wanted to see what he would name them. What did he name them? They're individually named. What did he name them? Because God wanted to see if he knew. Again, angels, animals, mankind. That's the order. I'll make that case next week. His initial task, his first direct order from his creator was to care for the animals. That's a huge task. What were they doing already? Because he says, go, go what? Start multiplying. Wants them to multiply. And I got one guy here. I'm a, you know, we used to call that in the sheetrock business. I'm a one-legged, one-armed paper hanger. And he's not very efficient. So he's by himself. And he needs somebody to help him, right? He needs a helper. And he's a, a specific kind of helper because what's going on? How fast do rabbits multiply? Really fast. Multiplication was coming, and, and he, he put out a help wanted sign. There's a lot of naming going on. You know, take care of all of them. Okay, running low on time, aren't I? Yes, I am. This is where the rapid fire segment goes. Man, sinful fallen man is guilty. He cannot provide blood. The blood of humanity is corrupted. It's mortogenic. It's got death in it. It's dying blood. And the angels do not have blood. And since the life is in the blood, Leviticus 17.11, Leviticus 17.13-14, through blood is an indication of life. We need a blood transfusion. We need living blood. Now, we know for sure angels do not have blood. We know for sure that man's blood is contaminated. Atonement at, from sin and death requires innocent blood. Leviticus 16.3, To repeat, only the animals remain now, don't they? Those, those who Adam and the woman were to care for became the ones who would have to die. They would have to shed blood. That's the system. Life is in the blood. I, that's a consequence I suspect that Adam foresaw. In fact, I'm positive he knew this. He knew exactly what would happen. He knew that the life was in the blood. He got that. And so when the, when the blood becomes contaminated, then the, the life is in jeopardy. The animals, uh, like I said, the, the animals that are sacrificed, as I said last week, are a portrait of Christ. They're innocents dying to save the guilty. This alone should persuade everyone that the animals will be resurrected. That by itself should have done it. I think about those two animals, and again, Christ calls himself the Lamb of God, and I'm confident that he calls himself the Lamb slain. So I'm confident that that's 321 Genesis. Those, two, those lambs 
came to God to be slain. And I, I, I'll get into what he's going to do to animals, uh, how he's going to change us and how he's going to change them, because he does both at resurrection. But I want to know what those animals thought about this sacrifice that they were now going to make. Would Christ annihilate those who portray his blood sacrifice? That becomes the question. What does this say? If you say that he does, then what do you what are you saying about him? Uh, so anyway, I, I know that the as again the the vast uh, theological sector is against me. So we I endeavor to persevere. However, the law of comfort comes the the the. The law of conservation of energy it states that the total energy in an isolated system remains constant. And that's a fundamental that, again, I think is so important for the Bible student to know. And I should throw in the, the law of conservation of mass matter and even antimatter and information law. All of those I could put it all in the same category here. But for today, just recognize that matter and energy are conserved in an isolated system and the universe... Are, the entirety of the universe, the totality of the universe, that's the largest isolated system we have. Now, what they like to do is say, okay, we'll separate the earth out from the entire universe, and we'll say, no, the earth is inherent, it's intricate, all this intrinsic uh, gravitational phenomena is in the entire universe. The point, yay, another point that's three for those counting at home, is that the creation period, the time of creation, ended at Genesis 2, 1 through 3. That's when it ended. Creation ended there. And nothing can be created or destroyed in a isolated system. And the universe is an isolated system. Nothing more was created that was to be created. The total mass energy was established. The six days of creation have come to pass. They're done. There is not another six days of creation. There was only the one six days of creation when it came to Ruach, Nefesh, Shaya, and everything else, trees and everything else. So, if creation has come to pass, what's left? No more creation. What's left? Obviously, the future is one thing. The Bible says it over and over and over again. The future is resurrection. Creation and resurrection are linked together. How are they linked? God will not create new, different living beings. He won't. Creation is over. He will resurrect his living beings, and he will change them. But he won't create new ones. Again, repeat, repeat, repeat. Creation is over. If there are animals in the New Jerusalem and on the New Earth, then they have to be who? Because creation is over. The only choice is that they are the resurrected animals. And you read about horses coming out of heaven. Again, no new creation. So those have to be resurrected horses. God, again, will not create new, different living beings. He will resurrect and change what he conceived before time, Jeremiah 1, 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Psalms 139.16. God saw the substance of all that lived being yet unformed. He saw from a frame of observation 
that is outside of time. He is timeless. I knew you. Will he annihilate that which he knows? He's the rememberer. Ask this. How much joy will Christ feel at the time of the resurrection for all those who will be eternally with him? How much joy will he have? Luke 15, 7. One of my favorite verses about this particular subject. Jesus Christ, the resurrecting God himself, speaks about the joy in heaven when one sinner is saved. How much joy over wiping away every tear? The question becomes this. How limited do you have, how, how limited is your position on resurrection? How small is your resurrection? How big is his? What kind of person is he, is what you're doing. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. He doesn't think like us. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven. This is Christ. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 justified who need no repentance. Who need no repentance. Luke 15, 7 is uh, dikaiosis, which means uh, justification. You will see righteous persons translated. Persons isn't in the text. There's no persons. It's just those justified. The immediate question that leaps off the Bible and smacks you upside the head is who's the 99 that need no repentance? Who needs no repentance? What are the options? Can it be angels? Can it be animals? Or can it be humanity? Dems the choices. Give me an answer. We can eliminate the demonic angels, can we? Can we get rid of them? Those that left their estate, their tent, their abode, their dwelling, Jude 6, they're clearly not justified, are they? They're in the lake of fire. And we'll get to the double test for them sometime in the future again. How about all of humanity? Well, all of humanity, Romans 3, 9 through 18, have sinned. There is none righteous, no, not one, Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Can't be them. Who are the 99 that need no repentance? How about the faithful angels? Going to give me that? Fire away. What are they doing? They remained with God. Their role is to do what? They're the ones that are celebrating over the one sinner that repents. They're not the sinner. They're celebrating the sinner. And they're not the 99. One sinner who repents, who believes Jesus Christ, John 8, 12, 11, 25. They see both groups. They see the 99 who need no repentance and they see the one who repents. So they too are not the 99 who need no repentance. Now obviously there's a lot more than 99, isn't there? By elimination, I answered the question, didn't I? Do animals need repentance? I'll answer it again. Why do animals need no repentance is the question, isn't it? Why don't they need repentance? And once you've concluded that, why did God put his breath of the spirit of animals? I'm sorry, why did God put his breath of the spirit of life into his animals? Because he did, he says so, over and over and over and over again. That's, of course, sends us back to Ecclesiastes 3:18 through 22. This test, this this critical, important test. It's so crucial. Why is it crucial? The Bible streams out passage after passage after passage that animals are immortal. How many passages, verses can this ranting old man find? You're trying to. You're trying to. I can. I keep finding them, and I'll keep finding them. How many do I have to have? I'm going to bury these people that don't think that animals are immortal in passages that say they are, ones they never thought of. They've never seen them because they never know. They can't pass the test, so they're blind. Solomon answers at 322. A man should rejoice in his own works. 
for that is his heritage. Who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Rhetorical, after he dies. Rhetorical question number two. What is the definition of his own works? What works should he rejoice in? What work can a man do that he can rejoice over? Again, James 4.14. Obviously, understanding the immortality of animals is something that God desires his people to see, to know. Why is that Exodus 17.7? Psalm 49, 10 through 20, specifically, uh, this subject is specifically explained. Psalm 49, 12, 49, 20. And this is, again, last week I said, Nibnu, which is often translated perish, is not in the text as perish. It doesn't mean perish. Perish isn't there. It means compared to. Finally, for today, look at me go. Balaam rode a donkey, Numbers 22, 22. Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord that came to see Balaam on the, on the road and the donkey gets beaten because why? The donkey is, it's a female donkey, by the way, a female donkey and it, it tries to stop Balaam from going forward, breaks his leg. Balaam's going to kill it with a sword if he had one, but he doesn't have one, so he beats it with a stick. And then the donkey says, what are you doing this, you idiot? And, and then he can see Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Mark 11, 1 through 10. Luke 19, 29 through 38. John 12, 12 through 25. Zechariah 9, 9. Genesis 22, 3. All of that explains why Jesus Christ had a female donkey and a colt donkey. He likes his donkeys. So put all of those together and you will now be able to pass the test. Okay, maybe not. Pretty soon. And I finished on time. Somebody give me a cookie. I should get a cookie. Look at me. Worldwide Christian Radio should be thrilled. Okay, that's it. Wake up.